All right, if you have a Bible, uh, we're going to jump right in. If you have a Bible, uh, we're going to be in Joshua chapter 9. If you need a Bible, if you just put your hand up, we've got an usher in the back. He'd love to be able to come and bring one of these to you. Um, If you have one of these Bibles, like me, from the church, we are on page 159. We are in 159. As you turn to Joshua chapter 9, I want to paint a hypothetical situation for you, okay? It's 2 a.m., and what do you do at 2 a.m.? You sleep. So it's 2 a.m., and all of a sudden, your iPhone, which I know you have right next to your bed, because that's where everybody's iPhone goes when they go to sleep, it starts vibrating uncontrollably because some person invited you or gave you a life in Candy Crush on Facebook. And so it starts vibrating and wakes you up. And you're like, man, what's up with this? Quit playing Candy Crush at 2 in the morning. So you get up and get a glass of water and uh, come back and lay back down. And what happens? You can't go back to sleep, right? Well, you can't turn the light on and read because that will wake, wake your wife up. So what do you do? You get up and you go sit in front of the TV and you turn the TV on, right? And the only two things that you're going to find on the TV at 2 or 3 a.m. in the morning is reruns of ESPN Sports Center and infomercials, right? You guys know, you, you guys ever watch any of these infomercials? I mean, I mean, you can just picture the infomercials that come on. There are infomercials selling all sorts of items on all sorts of things. And, and what they do in these infomercials, the purpose of these infomercials is, is they want to paint a picture. They want to they tell a story that makes life seem impossible unless you have one of these items. So the infomercial goes around and they films, they, 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 they record some average Joe telling about their story of how Kevin Trudeau taught them the secrets of healing every disease on the earth, how he taught them the secrets of amassing millions of dollars for themselves, and how Kevin Trudeau taught them the secret of having a, ma- a photographic memory. And then magically, if you send in three easy payments of forty nine ninety nine all the way to Kevin's jail cell in prison, you can have the secrets to these things. Well, I just happen to have a little selection of infomercials um, that you may want to watch and you may want to add to your Christmas list. Go ahead and, and let's show a couple of these. Has this ever happened to you? Introducing the Slob Stopper. Forget messy spills and unplanned accidents. Just slip it on and enjoy your busy lifestyle. Perfect for your commute and everyday use. Made with polyurethane laminate fabric, the Slob Stopper absorbs on one side and is waterproof on the other. With two layers for double protection. Don't worry about covering up stains anymore. Go to SlobStopper.com and order today. Slob Stopper. Bibs aren't just for babies. Hot dogs. They're as American as baseball and apple pie. But what makes a hot dog more than just a hot dog? Introducing the Happy Hot Dog Man. It brings ordinary hot dogs to life, making lunchtime more fun. Just put your hot dog into the Happy Hot Dog Man and close the lids. The Happy Hot Dog Man makes a happy imprint on your hot dog. Now you're ready to cook it into a fun Happy Hot Dog Man figure that can be decorated and eaten. It's like a toy you can eat. Make it a game to dress your dog the best and vote which one is the wiener. We all end up acting like kids at dinner. Make your dinner a wiener with the Happy Hot Dog Man. GLH means great looking hair. Just spray GLH on and it instantly covers your bald spot, leaving you with great looking hair. And ladies with thinning hair or bald spots, GLH solves the problem instantly. 
GLH is not a paint or a cover-up. It's an amazing powder that clings to the tiniest hairs on your head. It actually builds on itself, leaving you with great, great-looking hair. Oh, no, you missed that pot again. You probably don't have enough time to practice. You can have more time to practice your putting with the Potty Putter, the amazing new toilet time golf game that lets you practice your putting on the potty. Your Potty Putter comes with its own putting green made of the same professional carpet found at miniature golf courses. Now practice your putting every time you take care of your other business. Just aim and shoot the ball into the cup. Just think, all that extra practice every time you visit the job. In no time, you'll shave strokes from your game. Just choke up on your putter and sink the ball over and over again. Don't limit your life to a tiny toilet. Let your imagination soar with a potty putter, the instant solution that lets you practice your putting every day. For over 100 years, we've been scrunching and folding toilet paper. Finally, there's a better way. Comfort Wipe, the sanitary paper extension arm and holder. The first improvement to toilet paper as we know it since the 1880s. It extends your reach a full 18 inches while it follows the contours of your body and comfortably cleans. Just pop on the toilet tissue and when through, just press the release button and the tissue drops right into the toilet. Being a big guy certainly has its advantages and its disadvantages. This is a great product. How many of you guys have seen any of those? How many of you just created a new birthday wish list? Yeah? Thank you, Dana Kalavik, for putting that video together for us. You know, I just have to wonder, when you watch these infomercials and you watch these people that are being interviewed, do you ever just wonder, like, was your life really changed forever because of this uh, product? Or are you maybe going a bit over the top and maybe, you know, pushing the truth a little bit, pushing the envelope? You know, I mean, who cares? Who cares if there's actually any real um, evidence to back up the claims that what this product does for the person? I mean, after all, it's much cheaper to produce an infomercial than it is to get an FDA or FTC approval, right? So Joshua chapter 9, as we look in Joshua chapter 9, it almost sets up kind of like an infomercial. In Joshua chapter 9, we're going to learn about a city named Gibeon whose people knew that God was blessing Joshua, that God was blessing the, the Israelites, and they knew that they stood no chance at defending themselves against the God of Israel, against the Israelites. And so they make up a story like their infomercial. They gather all the specific props to validate their story. And then they sell, sell, sell that story to the Israelites in hopes of securing their freedom. For Joshua... And the Israelites, common sense says, man, this story is true. Common sense, you look at these stories and say, man, how come you can't improve your putting that way, right? I mean, that's what common sense, that's what they're trying to get across to you. But we're going to see something today. We're going to see the danger of common sense. In fact, that's the title of this message that we've uh, gotten from Joshua chapter 9 is the danger of common sense. So before we read, would you, would you pray with me? God, we are so thankful for the opportunity to be in your house today, to be with your people. And Lord, I pray um, that you would just put the distractions out of our mind. I pray, Lord, that you would allow your spirit to rest upon us. God, that you would allow your spirit to speak to us. That as we open up your word, that God, but you said your word does not return void. God, I pray that it will not return void today. 
That every one of us, as we open up your word and say, God, what is, it, what is it that you would speak to me about? That, God, you would speak to every one of us. That you would draw us to yourselves. That you would reveal yourself to us. God, I pray that you would give us understanding. I pray for those of us who are coming in, God, who we need to meet with you desperately today. That you would meet with us here. God, we love you and we praise you. And we ask for your blessing in our time together. In your name, amen. So I want to look at, just uh, start out and read the first, couple, first two verses with me. Uh, we're going to read the first two verses of Joshua chapter 9. And verse 1 says this, and it says, As soon as all the kings were beyond the Jordan and the hill country and in the lowland, along all the coast of the great sea toward Lebanon, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, they heard of this. What did they hear of? They heard of all that God was doing on behalf of the Israelites. They heard about the walls of Jericho being defeated. They heard about the city of Ai being defeated. It says they heard of this, and they gathered together as one to fight against Joshua and the Israelites. See, it didn't take long for word to get out about what Israel had done to Jericho and what Israel had done to Ai. Every person in the Canaanite land, in the promised land, they were Facebooking it and they were tweeting all that was happening about the Israelites and about Jericho and I and Joshua and all that was happening. In fact, it even says that there were still reports about Israel's accomplishments before they even crossed the Jordan River into the land. And so these people, they know, hey, this is what's happening. The Israelites, they've come into our land and they're taking city by city and they're taking possession of it. Now, previously in chapter 2, we learned that because of how God was blessing the Israelites, that the people of the land, their hearts melted with fear. They were afraid because of what God was doing. They could see the writing on the wall. They could see that Israel's God was no match for any of them. But while their hearts melted before, that's not so. That's not the case anymore. Now, here in verse 1, we see that there are five kings who have united together to take Israel on. While they previously had been afraid, now these rival kings said, hey, let's rally together under a common cause to take Israel on. So we're not being fighting a one against Israel, but now we can have a group of five of us fighting against Israel. The question we have to say is, well, why is this change of heart? Why do we see in chapter 2 that they're so afraid? And now here in chapter 9, they're saying, hey, we're not afraid anymore. Let's, let's rally together and let's go and fight them. What's the difference? Well, if you remember a couple weeks ago, remember the defeat at Ai in chapter 7. The defeat at Ai that happened because of the sin of Achan. Because Achan had sinned and had taken things that belonged to God. God didn't bless Israel at the first battle of Ai, which led to Israel's defeat them running away from the enemy. So now these kings who are watching all that's happening in their land, they, they, they once stood fearful of Israel. Now they have seen Israel. Hey, they aren't unstoppable. They aren't the bulls from the 1990s. They see, hey, they are. It is possible for the Israelites to lose. The kings who had been each other's enemies for such a long time, they were now ready to call a truce to their tribal wars in order to commit to a common cause, which was defeating the Israelites. Now, this isn't the moral of the story. This isn't the, the, the purpose behind this message today. But it's something that is still important to point out. See, only now do we begin to realize and to see the consequences of Achan's sin. 
Remember, Achan's sin brought judgment upon his family and affected those around him. But you see, the consequences of his sin have trans- transferred beyond just his family. The consequences of his sin is now the enemy, they're no longer afraid of the Israelites. Now they, they have a little bit of, of wind underneath their wings saying, hey, we can, we can defeat these guys. This was the consequence of Achan's sin. In the following chapters, they introduce a transition from what we've seen as the victorious people of God, whose occupation of the land could have only been a relatively simply matter, uh, a matter of simply defeating uh, the enemy who was already discouraged. And it's going to transition into an unending history of battle, of bloodshed, of idolatry that will haunt Israel throughout their entire history. You see, sin not only, affects, uh, not only affects those close to us, but we will probably never even know how our sin affects those around us. Whether it turns people on to God or whether it turns them off to God. I mean, you ever, have you ever thought about how your faithfulness or how your lack of faith have you ever thought about how that might influence other people's hearts? Whether it will turn them to Jesus or whether it will turn them away from Jesus. I mean, this is something Achan probably never even realized. But because of Achan's sin, this is a consequence. And we have to realize our faithfulness or our lack of faith will have implications all around beyond what we will ever know. So these first two verses, they are the background for the next three or four chapters, and they set the stage for all the future conflicts. You see, up to this point in Joshua chapter 9, uh, Israel, they go out and they find their battles. They attack the cities. But now we're going to see the, their battles will come and find them. But you know, as we look at this, and we look at the, 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 the cause, the, the, the danger that, that Achan's sin has put on them, we're going to see that Israel's greatest danger wasn't this confederation of armies of Canaan. We're going to see that their, their, their next danger is actually a group of men from Gibeon who are about to enter their camp and deceive Joshua and the people of Israel. The Bible describes Satan sometimes as a devouring lion. And he also describes Satan sometimes as a deceiving serpent, which is what we're going to see Satan doing here. So we're going to first look and see, in verses 3 to 13, Gibeon's cunning deception. We're going to see a cunning deception from the people of Gibeon. Would you follow along as I read verses 3 to 13? It says, But when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and I, they took on their part, uh, acted with cunning, and they went and made uh, ready provisions, and took worn-out sacks for their donkeys and wineskins, worn-out and torn and mended, and with worn-out patched sandals on their feet and worn-out clothes. And all their provisions were dry and crumbly. And they went to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal and said to him and to the men of Israel, We have come from a distant country, so now make a covenant with us. But the men of Israel said to the Hivites, Perhaps you live among us. Then how can we make a covenant with you? And they said to Joshua, Hey, we're your servants. And Joshua said to them, Who are you and where do you come from? And they said to him, we come from a very distant country. Your servants have come because of the name of the Lord your God. For we have heard a report of him and all that he did in Egypt. And all that he did to, to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan. To Sihon, the king of Heshbon, and Og, the king of Bashan, who lived in Ashtaroth. 
So our elders and all the inhabitants of our country said to us, take provisions in your hand for the journey and go to meet them and say to them, we are your servants. Come now, make a covenant with us. And they said, look, here's our bread. It was still warm when we took it from our houses as our food for our journey on the day that we set out to come to you. But now, behold, it's dry. It's dry and crumbly. And these wineskins were new when we filled them. And behold, now they've burst. And these garments and these sandals of ours, they are worn out from our very long journey. See, Gibeon was a uh, hill city, uh, one of the royal cities of Canaan. Its inhabitants were called the, the Hivites. They were a people specifically condemned by God. Gibeon was located about 25 miles away from where Israel was camped at Gilgal. And they were one of, one of the cities that were on Joshua's list to be destroyed. And verse 4 says that the people of Gibeon, the Gibeonites, they acted with cunning. Now this word cunning can also be translated as a word ruse. And depending on where you read it in the Bible, sometimes this word cunning can have a positive, uh, a positive uh, uh, feel. But here we definitely see it also has a negative feel. It says that this group of people, they assembled a group of men and they equipped them to look like they were an official delegation from a foreign city. Their clothing, their food, their equipment, they were all designed to give the impression that they had been on a long and difficult journey from a distant city. You see, in Joshua chapter, or excuse me, in Deuteronomy chapter 20, God's law stated that Israel, they could come in and they were to destroy all the cities in, in Israel. They were to destroy all the cities of the promised land. But if after the conquest, after Israel had taken possession of the land, if Israel was involved with other wars, they could offer peace to the cities that were outside of the land. Okay? So this is the premise. Somehow the Gibeonites, they knew about this law. They knew that if they pretended to be from outside of the promised land, outside of the land of Canaan, that if they could be from outside of the land, that they could make a treaty with Israel and they could ensure their freedom. And so the, the, the Gibeonites, they decide to use this law for their own protection. Now, their deception that we'll see involved cunning, but it also involved several lies in an attempt to avoid certain death and, and de deception. There's an old politician. Uh, you never trust those guys. An old politician by the name of Adlai Stevenson. And he is quoted as saying this. He says, a lie is an abomination unto the Lord and a very help and a very present help in trouble. And that seems to be kind of what the Gibeonites are doing here in chapter 9. First, in verses 6 and 9, they, they, the first lie is that they came from a far country, when in reality they lived about 25 miles away from Gilgal. Their second lie was they said they lied about their food and their clothing in verse 12. They said, this spread of ours, it was warm when we packed it at home and on the day that we left you. But now, look, our bread is dry and crumbly and molded. It's got, you know, that proof that we came from a far country. They also, they lied about themselves. And they gave the impression that they were important envoys on an official peace mission from the elders of the city. And their last lie, verses 8, 9, and 11, they called themselves your servants. They said, Israel, hey, we're your servants. When in reality, they aren't, they aren't Israel's servants. They're Israelites' enemies. So these four, if these four lies weren't bad enough, these visitors, they gave this blasphemous testimony about God. They said in verses 9 to 11, they said this. They said, 
from a very distant country, your servants have come. And listen to this. They said, because of the name of the Lord your God. They said, for we have heard a report about him and all that he did in Egypt and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon, the king of Eshbon, and to Og, the king of Bashan, who lived in Ashtaroth. So our elders and all the inhabitants of our country said to us, take provisions in your hand for the journey and go and meet to them and say to them, we are your servants. Come now and make a covenant with us. You see, this little confession of faith almost, that the Gibeonites make. It sounds very familiar to what Rahab said in Joshua chapter 2. Remember in Joshua chapter 2, Rahab, who was an enemy of God, who was in the promised land, she made this amazing profession of faith and said, hey, your God, he's done all these things. Your God is the one true God. I mean, these confessions of faith sound very familiar, very similar. But you know, Sometimes it's extremely difficult to tell the difference between real faith, like Ahab's, and flattery, like the Gibeonites. Especially when the flattery sounds so spiritual and religious. One key that is missing from the Gibeonites' testimony here, compared to Rahab's, is there's no clear statement that God is really the one true God. See, what the Gibeonites are doing is they're giving lip service. It's all a part of their infomercial trying to paint the picture that they've come from such a great way and that they want to be under the Israelites' hands just so they can get their freedom. So that's the Gibeonites' infomercial. They've made up the story. They've put their props out there. They said, here it is. And as we read through those verses, it seems as though the Israelites, it seems that they're suspicious in all the right places. And verse 7, they said, hey, you know, maybe you aren't from a far country. Maybe you live right around them. Maybe you are one uh, live amongst us. And Joshua pushes them further in verse 8. And he says, who are you and where did you come from? Do you know, have you ever noticed how sometimes the wrong decision can often look like the right one? I mean, you never noticed this beforehand. But after you've made the decision, you realize that this was the wrong decision that it was packaged in all the right wrapping paper, had all the pretty bows on it to make it look like it was good and right. And it just makes sense. But oftentimes, that right decision, that wrong decision is packed in the right paper. We have to accept that the right decision is not necessarily the one that looks the best or is the most obvious. The right decision is sometimes the hardest, the ugliest, and the least obvious decision there is for us to make. I don't want us to fear making decisions. But I want us to recognize that sometimes the right decision and the wrong decision can look equally correct. We simply cannot depend wholly on our wisdom to figure it out. And now here as we go and look at verse 14 and 15, we're going to see the story is going to shift from being about the Gibeonites and their cunning deception. We're going to see it shift into Israel's failure. Read verses 14 and 15 with me. It says, the men took some of their provisions, but did not ask counsel from the Lord. And Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live. And the leaders of the congregation swore to them. See, this is what I call the problem with common sense. See, after hearing all their speeches, they take some of their provisions. They take some of that moldy bread. They probably make one of the teenage boys take a bite of the moldy bread just to verify this bread is bad. Sounds like a youth group game, you know? 
And uh, Joshua and the leaders, they, they look at the story, they look at the bread, they look at the props, and you know, this story, it seems legitimate, right? I mean, these people, it really seems like they maybe they did come from a far country. And so Joshua and the leaders, they make a covenant with them. The leaders took a scientific approach instead of a spiritual approach. They depended on their own senses. They examined the facts. They discussed the matter, and they agreed on their conclusion. It was all very logical and convincing. It was kind of like common sense. These people came from a far country, but it was all wrong. You see, verse 14, you should underline the second part of verse 14. It's the key part of this entire chapter. Take your pen out. I want you to underline this. It says, but they did not ask counsel from the Lord. They, they, they looked at all the, the wisdom around them. They, they looked at their common sense and said, man, we can make this decision. And they decided, hey, we don't need to pray about it. We don't need to ask God's direction on this. I mean, we're smart enough. We can read the writing of the law. We can make our own decision. Now, there are times in our lives when we make obvious, rebellious, high-handed, sinful decisions. We make decisions declaring, God, I don't care what your will is. I don't care what you would want from me. I'm going to do this anyways. There's times when we make those kind of decisions. But more often than that, I'd imagine that we make more subtle but equally destructive decisions by putting too much trust in ourselves. This isn't about asking the wrong question. It's about asking the wrong person. Joshua, he asked the right question so as not to be deceived, but he was. He was because he did not ask counsel from the Lord. He depended on his own wisdom. He, he depended on himself and his own knowledge and his own common sense. It did not depend on God. Do you depend on God's wisdom to make decisions, both big and small? I mean, oftentimes what happens is our sinful hearts They make bad things look better than they really are. That's called lust. That is what our sinful hearts do. They make bad things look better than they really are. And and oftentimes, our sinful hearts, they make good things look worse than they really are. This is called pride. And this becomes the way that so many of us will fall into sin and fall into making bad decisions. It's because of the lust in our hearts, because of the pride in our hearts. The temptation with believing that we are wise, that sin hasn't really affected our mind or our emotions. The temptation is that we would believe that our own intellect and our own mind is in fact trustworthy. My Proverbs said, the heart is deceitfully wicked. Who can know it? Our problem is not that we don't think. Our problem is that we don't pray. I mean, maybe, yeah, we pray about those big major decisions or when tragedies come. But truthfully, most of our prayers come when the crap hits the fan. That's the time we get down on our knees when things are going rough, when things are going smoothly. That's the time we say, hey, God, we need you right here and right now. Not when we're out making the everyday decisions in our lives. We don't ask for God's wisdom on, on these types of decisions because we don't think we need to. You know, we don't ask for God's input on our decisions because we think, well, it's not really that important. We don't ask for God's input in our decisions because, well, I already know the answer. I already know what I want to do. We don't ask for God's input in our decisions because we don't want to wait for his answer. We don't ask for God's input in our decisions because we already know what God has said and we don't like it. We don't want to, we don't have to follow what God 
has said. Or maybe we don't ask for God's input in our decisions because we don't believe he really speaks. The implication in these verses seems to be that if Joshua had asked, God would have spoken. God's direction is available, but it is ignored. And I can, I can guarantee every one of us this. Most of our bad decision-making is not rooted in knowing or spending too much time in God's Word or praying too much to God. Most of our bad decisions comes from trusting ourselves and trusting our own common sense. Moves on to the third part of the, uh, of the verse, the concern for God's honor. Verses 16 through, read verses 16 through 20, 21 with me. It says, at the end of three days, after they had made a covenant with them, they heard that they were neighbors and they lived among them. And the people of Israel set out and they reached their cities on the third day. Now their cities were Gibeon and uh, Shephira and Beroth and Kiriath-Jerim. But the people of Israel did not attack them because the leaders of the congregation had sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. Then all the congregation murmured against the leaders. But all the leaders said to all the congregation, they said, We have sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel, and now we may not touch them. This we will do to them. Let them live. Lest wrath come upon us because of the oath we have sworn to them. And the leaders said to them, Let them live. So they became cutters of wood and drawers of water for all the congregation, just as the leaders had said to them. See, by God's grace, by God's grace, they had one of those uh-oh moments three days later. Those uh-oh moments. Hey, we made a mistake here. We dropped the ball. We screwed up. I mean, how did the leaders find out about this big mistake? We don't know. We can speculate. Maybe they read something on Facebook. Maybe, maybe they overheard the, the enemy saying, yeah, we pulled one over on them. Maybe they saw the, the recording information for the infomercial that they put out there. I don't know how they found out. But it, came, it, but it became obvious that Joshua and the leaders had made a huge mistake. And no doubt, they were humbled and they were embarrassed because of it. And it says the people, they started complaining against the leaders. Why would the people complain against the leaders? Well, the people knew that Joshua, that Moses had given stern warnings in Deuteronomy chapter 7. He gave stern warnings about compromising with the people of the land. They said, do not do this. And they knew that, that Moses had warned them of this. And now they had entered into a foolish covenant with the enemy. So the people, they march to the cities of the Gibeonites. And they're ready to destroy them. But the leaders stop. The leaders say, now we need to stop right here. Even though we've screwed up. The leaders refused to break their oath to the Gibeonites. Let me, let me say this. Leaders make mistakes. Leaders make mistakes. Pastors of churches, leaders in the church, wherever you are, leaders make mistakes. If you don't believe that's going to happen, hey, I tell you, you guys have been here at Restoration Church, you know that this leader makes mistakes, right? Because if I ever say I don't, I need a, a swift kick in the backside. Who said right? Oh my goodness. Church discipline. <laughs> leaders, pastors, we make mistakes. But see, the mark of a good leader is what happens after the mistake. Does the leader run? Do they fight? Do they deny that they made a mistake? Do they not be held accountable for their mistakes? 
You see, a good leader like Joshua is one that can admit that he made a mistake and he can lead through it. A good leader like Joshua is one who leads with strength and courage by standing for God's word, even when doing so condemns his own actions. Commitment with God's word does not change when the situation changes. And even though, even though he's humiliated, Joshua will not bring further disgrace on God and on his people by breaking his word. Joshua is going to glorify and magnify the grace of God in this mess that he has created. Now, I know many of you are sitting there and you're going to reason and say, well, well, you know, the, the Gibeonites, they didn't keep their end of the commitment, right? They, they lied to enter into this agreement. So, hey, the, the agreement's off, right? And they don't have to, the Israelites, they don't have to keep their commitment because the Gibeonites, say hey, they, they lied about it, right? I mean, that's what many of us are going to argue right here and right now. Let me just say that we have a pretty whacked out view of commitment. See, many people wrongly believe that commitment is, pre- is predicated on what the other person we have committed to does. Fulfilling our promises has nothing to do with how well somebody else fulfills theirs. Someone else failing to keep their word is not an excuse for us not to keep ours. Joshua knew that they were obligated to keep their word even if they were tricked into giving it. What might this be teaching us about how we are to live faithfully within twisted situations, within difficult relationships, within hard commitments that we've made that have turned sour. See, God is honored. His glory is upheld when we keep our word. God is not honored by our happiness if it means we break our word. And of course, everyone has their legal defense team circling to defend their own exception to the rule, their biblical right to break whatever promise they have made. I mean, maybe this is why, maybe this is why in today's culture we have a divorce rate that is over 50%. Maybe this is why we have people who can't commit to church and they're going to bounce around because they aren't going to make a commitment to what God has said because they're always going to find an excuse as to why, hey, I don't have to make this commitment here. See, I'm not trying to convince you of the rightness or wrongness of every promise that you've ever kept or broken. I simply want to declare to you that your word means something to God. Your commitment, your commitments you make in your life, they mean to God. They mean something to God. And the breaking your word is a serious thing. So what happens to the Gibeonites? Let's read the rest of the chapter, verses 22 through 27. It says, Joshua summoned them, and he said to them, why did you deceive us, saying we are far from you when you dwell among us? Now therefore you are cursed, and some of you shall never be anything but servants, cutters of wood and drawers of water for the house of my God. Then they answered Joshua and said, Because it was told to, to your servants for a certainty that the Lord your God had commanded his servant Moses to give you all of the land and to destroy all the inhabitants of the land from before you. So we feared greatly for, your, for our lives because of you, and we did this thing. And now behold, we are in your hand. Whatever seems good and right in your sight do to us. So Joshua did this to them, and he delivered them out of the hand of the people of Israel, and they did not kill them. But Joshua made them that day cutters of wood and jars of water for the congregation and for the altar of the Lord to this day in the place that he should choose. You see, these Gibeonites, they didn't exactly get off scotch-free. 
Even though Joshua refused to, to break his covenant with them, he refused to break his word, he refused to break relationship with them, that didn't mean that he didn't have the right and the responsibility to dictate, dictate the terms of their relationship. And there definitely are consequences. That day, the Gibeonites became slaves, became servants to the people of Israel. They became woodcutters and water carriers in God's sanctuary and in the temple. See, the very thing that the Gibeonites hoped for, they hoped to attain. They, they hoped, hey, by painting this picture, by, by, by lying, hopefully we can attain our freedom. The very thing that they sought, they lost in the end. They became slaves. And as we move into a conclusion, we conclude from this message. There's a few things that we can walk away and take away from this. We can take away that we should turn to God for, for God's wisdom and guidance in all things. Even when common sense says, hey, we don't need to ask God about this. We can walk away and say, hey, it's obvious we need to pray more. We need to trust God more. If you walk away with that, that's good. That's good. You know, as you look at this message and say, well, what, do I, what, what else do I walk away from? If you walk away and say, hey, man, I need to take my commitments seriously. I need to, to bring, give honor to God by fulfilling my commitments. You walk away with that, praise God. I want you to walk away with that. But you know, there's something so much more than that. You see, I hate for you to come in here and hear on a Sunday, Sunday service, it's all about you gotta, you gotta, you gotta pray more. You gotta, you gotta have more faith. You gotta try harder. You know, because what's gonna happen is we're gonna try that. And what's gonna happen is we're gonna sin. We're gonna fail. We're not gonna be able to do things exactly the way that we should. So there's something deeper in this chapter that I don't want you to miss because it's actually more important than just praying more. It's more important than always keeping your word. You see, this entire chapter, especially at the end, we see not only the power of sin and its consequences, but we also see the greater power of God's grace to save in spite of our sin. See, the godly Israelites, they sinned in this chapter. Their sin was unintentional, meaning they didn't intend to. But because they believed that they could trust their own sinful eyes, they believed that they could make decisions on their own and make decisions apart from God, we saw they were wrong, and they sinned, and they suffered the consequences of the sin. The, godliest, the godless Gibeonites, I mean, they sinned intentionally, meaning they believed that their sin would ensure their freedom and lead to their happiness. Isn't that what our sin does? Don't we choose to sin because we think, hey, there's going to be happiness. There's going to be freedom in this sin. And that's what the Gibeonites thought, and it led to their slavery. But through a major mistake and through the resulting slavery, God is still about redemption. God is still honored and God furthers his kingdom by bringing more men closer to his glory so that more men can be redeemed. The Gibeonites were made slaves who served in the, tor in the courts of God and the tabernacle and the temple for the rest of their lives. And this, in the end, brings glory to God for both the Israelites as well as for the Gibeonites. I mean, did you, did you see this? Did you see that God is bigger than any of the sinful mistakes? God is bigger than any of the screw-ups that we read about in this chapter. And truthfully, God is bigger than any of your sin. 
God is bigger than any of your screw-ups. God is bigger than any sin that is committed against you and I. We know this because the cross proves it. In some mysterious, awesome, incredible way, God uses the cross to paint this picture. God used the sinful choices of sinful men to put Jesus to death on the cross as a way of bringing about God's plan of redemption. Look here for a second. Say, what do you want me to walk away with, Pastor? Everyone was, every one of us in here today needs to walk out of here knowing the truth. The truth is not advice on how not to sin. The truth is not advice on how to avoid ever being deceived again. The truth is a man named Jesus who is ready to forgive and is powerful enough to transform. This is not to say that it doesn't matter how we make decisions. Really, it's only to say that there's only one decision that really matters, and that is faith in Jesus Christ. By faith, then we trust God, we depend on Jesus, we appeal to Jesus, we talk with Jesus. In all the ways we deny ourselves, we walk after Jesus, knowing that if we find ourselves in the midst of a mess that we created, that by faith, God can not only forgive, but he can overrule our mistakes and he can bring blessings out of our sins and out of our past failures. You see, through this whole story, we see the redemption of God. We see the grace of God time and time and time again. Here, both the Israelites and the Gibeonites, they sinned in obvious ways. We can see it. We can read it in the chapter. But guess what? God is still all about redemption. God is still a God of grace. And even when we make those mistakes, God still wants to use them for his glory, to advance his mission, to advance so more people would come into a relationship with him. So I don't know where you are today. Maybe you're a Gibeonite and your sin has been obvious. Your sin has been a a choice that you've made and you've chosen to sin. Maybe you are like the Israelites and your sin is a little bit more Not obvious. It was unintentional. Either way, do you know that God wants to use that for his glory? That God wants to redeem you from that? That God's grace will cover your sin. That God will will, will cover your sin and forgive you of your sin so you can be restored in relationship with him and so that God can be glorified in your life. Because that is the kind of God that we serve. That is the kind of God that we follow. As we look at this chapter and say, oh, there's so many things we could learn. Don't miss the gospel. Don't miss the fact that because Jesus died on the cross for you, that we can be forgiven, that we can experience God's grace. Amen? Would you pray with me?